Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. And the message entitled, The Unveiled Glorified Christ. Have you ever noticed that there's no pictures of Jesus or descriptions of Jesus? There are even attempts to try to describe what he looked like through the Gospels. Yet we have a very clear, uh, emaciated picture of Jesus prophetically in Isaiah. It says he has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Very possibly that means that Jesus will still bear the marks when we see him. The description of Jesus is the one given to John here in the Revelation. It is one of the glorified Christ unveiled to the world. Mark it well. Don't miss that image. He is not weak. He's not before Pilate. He is conquering. He is um, reigning. He is powerful. John has pronounced this prologue to ensure that all would understand that the revelation was of divine origin. We've seen this. This is God's word. This is not John's suggestion. This is not his, you know, heat stroke vision that he got. John has also greeted the seven churches in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in verse 4 down to 8. Now John relates his vision to the glorified Christ, which is characterized by three important things. Let me read for us here. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation of the kingdom of patience of Jesus Christ, was in the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last, and what you see Write in this book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with golden band. His head and hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance were like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell on my feet as dead. But he laid his hands on me, saying to me, Do not... Be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven Churches. The vision of John, the glorified Christ, is characterized by the following. First, you have the impressionable voice of the vision, verse 9 through 11. Second, the incredible person in the vision, verse 12 to 16. And thirdly, the inescapable perception of the vision, 17 to 20. The impressionable voice of the vision comes first, 9 through 11. Notice in verse 9, the identity of, of the person hearing was John. The identity, once again, I, John. This is the third time John introduces himself. Five times John identifies himself by his name. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 9, chapter 21, 2, 22, 8. Now, People say, we don't know who wrote the book of Revelation. John, five times. The humble perspective of John is threefold. Mark it well. First, by saying he was a companion in tribulation like they. He was not above them, but suffered as one of them. He's the last, he can say, I'm the last one. You guys bow down to me. Today, there's too much pastor worship. John was humble. People are following man today. I am no different than you. I am one of you and one among you and from you. I have feet of clay like you. 
You're to follow Jesus, never myself. You're to examine everything through Scripture. The word tribulation means pressing together, crushing like for graves and for olive oil. Jesus said to the disciples in the world, shall tribulation be of good cheer, but I have overcome the world in John 16, 33. That's regular tribulation. Even as horrible as it was in World War I, World War II, Hitler, everything. But that's distinct from great tribulation that is coming here in the book of Revelation. That's directly by the Antichrist and by the throne of God against a God-forsaking, rejecting world. Paul confirmed the souls of the new converts, as you know, and exhorted them that they must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation in Acts 14.22. Paul went out preaching the gospel. Churches started rising up. And he reminded them, you will suffer as a Christian. Now, when's the last time you heard one of our evangelists tell you that? It's always, hey, you want your life changed? You want to feel better? No, that's half truth. God, that will happen. Jesus said, pick up your cross. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. That's the gospel. That's not what's being preached often today. Everybody's real positive. Nobody wants to make just judgments that are ob- objective truth. Nobody wants to offend anybody. Let me tell you, it's time for people to be offended in a greater way in the United States. Peter said, we should not think it strange when we fall into fiery trials in 1 Peter 4.12. That's for here and now. That's distinct from the Great Tribulation. Now, the kingdom has already been present and it's active and it's still going on. Revelation 1.6 told us, but it's yet to come in its complete form. Revelation 20 verse 4, the kingdom will be here. So it's present and it's yet to come. Um, so by saying he was in the kingdom like they, that's the second Aspect of his humility. Um, He doesn't exalt himself. And thirdly, by saying, in the patience of Jesus Christ, this describes how he was going through the difficulty. Patience, hupomone. It means here, steadfast, consistent endurance. Not simply biting the bullet and getting by, but growing and learning the suffering lessons. God does not just want to make us suffer just to see how much we can squirm, but that I might use those things to grow into mature and be more like Him. Here again is humility, less like Him and more like Jesus. You don't hear none of that today, all about the positive and, and what you can do. And we've gone from the hope of Christ to community. From the organism of the church to organization. Our whole nation goes that way from the supreme organizer, Obama. Organizer of destruction. Amazing. Well, there's a greater one than him coming. Suffering has always purified the church. Comfort has always destroyed and polluted it. Check the history. Notice the location was the island of Patmos. The island was um, of the Aegean Sea, or the Mediterranean, 25 miles off the mainland, and 40 miles west, southwest of Miletus. Remember Miletus, Paul met there with the Ephesians for the last time in Acts 20. And then he went on to uh, Jerusalem, then to Rome. Now, the island was a rocky volcanic place about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. Uh, The north end was used by Rome as a penal um, um, location for those who they sentenced and they would send them for a certain amount of time. It was like a prison island out there. Uh, Tacitus tells us that. And um, Hippolytus said John was exiled after being boiled in oil, but he survived. And uh, Eusebius mentions that John was banished there by the emperor Domitian in the 95 AD, and then released about 18 months later, and you find that in the, um, it was released by, by uh, Nerva in uh, Ecclesiastes history, you find that in volume 3. Now, Domitian died in September 18th of 96 AD, therefore the revelation here probably was written somewhere between 95 and 96 AD. Uh, so John writes this as well as his gospel, uh, the very last apostle that's alive. Irenaeus and others say John returned to be the pastor of Ephesus 
after the exile, now you stop and think about it. Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Then John comes along as a pastor. And after John, his disciple, uh, Polycarp, was the, was the pastor. Three incredible men. Listen to me. The first church we're going to see, God has one thing against them. You have left your first love. For you to say, I would never leave my first love, you must think really highly of yourself. Every one of the apostles, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, every one of them said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? And everybody pushes eternal security today. Really? What is it that you're not hearing? Amazing to me. We are arrogant today in the church. Notice the reason was for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was in the, in the island. Persecution. America has not known persecution as Christianity or against Christianity. But I do believe Christian Disneyland is just about over. In a couple of months, we're going to have a group of senile men making a decision on homosexual marriages. And it's going to become law. That's going to put us right up against the law. We must obey God rather than man. That's where we draw the line. And I do think that persecution is coming to America. Make no mistake of it. First from within, then from without. The gospel message is the only way of salvation. Be careful of today's pressure for ecumenicalism. Again, you've got the marriage of, of the Catholic Church that lost so many souls during the Protestant Reformation and let alone through the Jesus movement. And now she is calling back her children, her wayward children, back to the Catholic Church and they're expanding their ability to believe in the gifts, this and that, but they still speak the same lies. They call anathemas against the Protestants and everything else. You've got Chuck Colson, who was a Christian who became a Catholic, and all the evangelicals made a big covenant with the Catholic Church and she is strong and alive today. And the emergent church and the emergent... And the, and the seeker-friendly church and Rick Warren and all these guys, they're all in the ecumenicalism and some of the Calvaries. I'm not looking for a job. You need to understand the gravity of the day that we're living. Look at verse 10. The indicated manner of reception of the vision is stated. John tells us he was in the Lord's day. Many interpret this to be Sunday. The only other place for this phrase is when Paul used it for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.30. Now, we know the church met on Sunday, the first day of, of, of the week. Uh, we see it in Acts. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16.2. Others interpret this to mean that John was taken up to the future, to the very day of the Lord. The major objection to this interpretation is due to the two appearances, but the context of each of them is completely different, so there shouldn't be. To the Corinthians, the meaning is clear. It is Sunday. But it is equally clear that the context here in Revelation is not the gathering of the church, but the period of God pouring out His wrath, which John gets caught up in the Spirit to see the events in Revelation 3.10, So, I believe this is the proper interpretation. Certainly no one would deny that the majority of the content of the book of Revelation is the day of the Lord from chapter 4 to 22. So the context determines that this is the John was taken up to that day and he saw these things and he's recording these things. Notice John heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. The voice was impressive and it caught John's attention. This is called a simile. A figure of speech showing comparison represented by the words like or as. That's how it's introduced. This is figurative language, not a literal trumpet uh, perhaps, but it could be. But it's a trumpet that announces what's going on. If someone says he, was, he ran fast as lightning, it doesn't mean that they were lightning, that just, but they were fast, right? But remember, we see this figurative language, but... The implications are literal events, okay? And the trumpets of old through the Old Testament 
this Israel had all kinds of trumpets for different things, for peace, for war, for different things, for picking up the camp and setting it up. And so there should be no reason. There's uh, different trumpets for different things. There are many trumpets in the New Testament. The trumpet of, uh, of um, the rapture or for the rapture, you have it in 1 Corinthians 15, 52 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. At the last trumpet, it'll sound. The trumpet of judgment that we see through the book of Revelation. A6 is one of them. The trumpet that gathers Israel at the end of the seven years of the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 31. So the context is going to tell you what that trumpet is referring to and in connection to. Now, notice the identity of the voice in verse 11. And intent was declared proclaiming to him his commission. The one speaking was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the first, the last. The first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet here. He is the eternal one, the source, the end of all things, the creator, the sustainer, the judge of all of mankind. God is not politically correct. He wants you to not be politically correct. He doesn't want you to bow the knee to Caesar. Only the book of Revelation refers to God as the Alpha and the Omega four times. Revelation 1, 8, 11, 21, 6, and 22, 13. The first and the last appears four times in the book of Revelation. 1, 11, 1, 17, 2, 8, and 22, 13. Key things that are found only in the book of Revelation and not other places often. Now notice the Lord Jesus commanded John to write in the book what he saw in the vision and commissions him to send it to the seven churches of Asia. This would include the entire book of the Revelation. Only what John saw, what he wrote, this was divine revelation. None of the words in the vision recorded are his own opinion or suggestions. It's God's revelation, divine, and God's inspiration, marking and ensuring the accuracy, inerrancy of it. There are 13 other direct references given to John to write. 111, 119, 21, 28, 212, 218. You look up the rest. Write, 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 13 times. What is it that we don't understand? He was to write what he saw. All seven are chosen by Jesus by name of the churches here. Notice which a letter would be addressed to in the, in the following chapters. Each one specifically is addressed as we'll, we'll examine them. The seven churches are located in the area of modern day Turkey today. Some of you have gone with us on trips. We've gone through there. The seven did not comprise all the existing churches, but the seven are used to give a complete representation of the condition of the church in John's day and the entire church age. Often the number seven is used to represent completeness. And this is very evident in the book of Revelation. You have seven stars, seven spirits, seven lampstands, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven angels. It appears 54 times in the book of Revelation. Do you think this is all coincidence? All seven churches were to receive all the seven letters. In fact, as I said, the entire book of Revelation. To Ephesus, he says. To Smyrna. To Pergamos. To Thyatira. To Sardis. To Philadelphia. To Laodicea. They were local churches in, in John's day. They represent a historical period in church history, as we'll see. And they represent a type of church for today. And they represent a type of Christian for today. So you can be a Laodicean lukewarm in an Ephesian church that teaches the word of God, but has left their first love. You can be an Ephesian in a Laodicean church. And you're shining bright. You get to judge yourself who you are. You remember Joshua saw a man with a sword drawn as they came into the land. He said, are you for us or for our adversary? He, and he said, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, 
What does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua 5.14 You see, he, he saw Jesus Christ before the incarnation. This is the understanding every time God appeared to somebody. They didn't say, hey, dude, how's it going? See, pastors are real, real modern today. They want to be so cool with the young people. There's no reverence in the pulpit for God and His Word. Each of us as Christians have heard and do hear the voice of the Lord as clear as John when he convicted us of our sin and we call upon his name. When we read and study the word of God on a daily basis, he ministers to us. When we obey or disobey, he commends us, he tells us he loves us or he reproves us and chastens us. When we ask him to direct and guide us, he does so. When he calls us, we respond. When we call upon him to enable us to minister, he does so. Remember what Jesus said. He says, take heed what and how you hear. Mark 4.24 and Luke 8.18. Today, people are not taking heed on what they hear and how they hear. We're going from the kingdom of Jesus Christ and the imminent expectation of his return to community and let's make each other comfortable. Wow. God can and does still speak to men today. But the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 is very clear that God at different times and in diverse manners spoken times past of the Father by the prophet has in these last days spoken unto us by his dear son. Period. He speaks to nobody else. He is the ultimate revelation. Anybody who points you to somebody else besides Jesus Christ, he's a thief and a robber. Get away from them. God has a promise that he can still speak through dreams and visions today. Now, sometimes we people want to go to the other extreme and say it's not for today. Well, listen, uh, Peter in Acts 2.17, quoting Joel, he says, In the last days your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, Right? That's all the way to the Great Tribulation. He never separated it. Now, when I first became Christian, I was a young man, 23 years old. I never had a vision. Now I'm an old man. I haven't had a dream. But if I did, it wouldn't contradict the Word of God. So the Word of God is a plumb line. And if your dream or vision contradicts the Word... You're out to lunch. And when you have that dream, don't go to a pastor to interpret it. In my Bible, there's no gift of interpretation of dreams or vision in the list of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, only Joseph and Daniel were given. So if God, if you believe God's giving you a vision or dream, then you go to Him. But if it is of Him, He will show you personally what he wants in your life, but it won't contradict the Word of God. It won't add to the Word of God, and it won't take away from the Word of God. Or maybe you just had some bad pizza the night before. But don't just exclude the last days. He's going to have to give dreams and visions. And that moves into the Great Tribulation period. When God's going to deal with people, they will be losing their life. What has Jesus commissioned you to do for him? Are you being obedient? I know what he hasn't commissioned you to do. To just drive here, listen to me and walk, drive out of here as soon as you can. It isn't to just sit and do nothing. You fit somewhere in the body. What are you doing? What has he called you to do? Are you doing it? Are you fulfilling that ministry? Has it made you more humble or has it puffed your head up? John is here, the last apostle. He's humble. He's serving. Are you giving God the glory? That's why any pastor who can explain 
what God has done in their ministry and give out a formula on how others can multiply and get huge churches. I can tell you that God hasn't done it. If you can explain why and how God has done it, it's not God. It's man. I can't tell you how God has done it here. Except that he's done it through his word. But I can't write you a book at it. There are no patterns. There is no glory to me. It's all to Jesus Christ what he's done and what he continues to do. This was the impressionable voice in the vision. Now notice, secondly, comes the incredible person in the vision. And don't lose this. 12 through 16. In 12, John turned to see the voice that had spoken to him. And having turned, he saw seven golden lampstands. The Old Testament tabernacle had a seven um, branch lampstand. But that's Jewish ground. This is Christian ground here. You find that in Exodus 25.3. This is the book of Revelation. The lampstands John saw were seven separate lampstands. Not one with seven branches. The Lord Jesus gives us the interpretation, by the way. They are the seven churches in verse 20. As if we move to, as we move to the book of Revelation, Jesus gives all the interpretation. We're not left to our interpretation. The churches are not the light in and of themselves, but merely the light holders for Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12. Only in this manner are the churches and the believer alike to the world. Matthew 5, 14. Notice John saw one like the Son of Man in the middle of the lampstand. In the middle. Verse 13. One like the Son of Man, exactly like Daniel saw in Daniel 7, 13. Did not Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. The title Son of Man is used to identify Ezekiel, as you know. Our Lord took it up for himself to identify himself with the humanity of man. He became man. Being God, he emptied himself of his glory, not his deity. Philippians 2, 5 on down to 11. Jesus used it over 80 times in his gospel. Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man? You are mindful of him and the Son of Man that you should visit him. Who are we that God would take time for us? He's a creator. He created us in his image and his likeness. We are way where we are fallen. He loves the world. Would you take time out for you if you were God? Now, if you're like our God, yes, you would. But if you're like any other God, no, you won't. Gods that are really no gods. Notice Jesus was clothed with a garment down to his feet, referring to the priestly dress. Back to Exodus 28, 4 and 39, 5 and many other places. The word down appears only this time in the New Testament, but seven other times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings, all but one for the high priest. It was all prophetic of Christ, our true high priest. The garment is to the floor, notice that, having no need of girding it, because the entire work of redemption is complete. When it says, gird up the loins of your, of your, uh, 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 of your garments, uh, 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 you would grab your garments and put them in your belt so you can work and not tri- get tripped up. Gird up the loins of your mind. Tuck them in so you don't get tripped up. Your thought process. Jesus is all the way down. Why? There's no work left to be done. In the tabernacle, there was no chair. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession. But he's resting. He's, he's standing here glorified, triumphant. The tabernacle had no chair. There was a bell on his garment. As long as he was moving, working, it was banging, bang, 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 bang. If it ceased, God struck him dead. Jesus was girded about his chest also with a golden band, representing dignity, majesty, a kingly royalty. The golden band or sash depicting his deity. This is the God-man for you and I. Then notice in 14, 
The head and hair of Jesus was white as wool, as white as snow. This indicative of three things, purity, holiness, and wisdom, which are missing in the church today. This is identical to the ancient days of Daniel 7, 9 through 10. Listen to him. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the ancient days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and his hair and head was pure as wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The book of Revelation, really a compilation of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and many of the prophets, there's hardly anything new in the book of Revelation. It's all from the Old Testament. But it's put together in completion by Jesus Christ. Notice the eyes of Jesus were like a flame of fire. This is symbolic of penetrating vision, of uh, being the prophet of Deuteronomy 15:18. This is um, uh, or 18:15. This is similar to Daniel 10:6. Uh, Fire has the power to transform things into permanency or consume them depending on the type of material it is. You put hay or wood in fire, it goes. You put silver and gold, it gets refined. God is a consuming fire. He will reward us for the motive of our heart. Hebrews 12, 29. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. The motive, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. God is not impressed by how much you and I do. Or what we do. He's impressed on why and how we do it. Do I do what I do because I love God and I love you? If it's not out of love for God and love for you, the person will receive the benefit, but there will be no reward to you, to you or I. He's not like man. We get so impressed with people. We want to hang out with them. We want to rub elbows. Get germs. That's all you get from man. Nothing is hidden from him. No one can do anything without him seeing it. No one can escape him. That's the idea here. The threefold office Jesus holds, high priest, king, and prophet, is very evident with this last description. Then notice 15. The feet of Jesus were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. First, the description is indicative of his firm judgment. Now, notice the difference between a lot of the church today. They don't want to make any judgments. They're moving with the political correctness of the progressiveness of the world. Brass or bronze is symbolic of judgment, refined without air. All have been warned of the judgment to come at his first coming. Did they believe? No. All are being warned about the second coming judgment. Do they believe it? No. All those left behind after the rapture will see the consummation of God's wrath. If you're left behind, do not take the mark. Die for Jesus Christ or you'll be damned for all eternity. All will be judged for their deeds by the gospel without partiality and the secrets of men's heart will be revealed. Romans 2, 6, 11, and 16 tells us. You notice there's no silver mentioned here. Gold is deity. Brass is judgment. Silver is redemption because all the redemption has been done. He has finished it. He's standing glorified. <laughs> Notice the voice of Jesus as the sound of many waters is symbolic of his majestic power and authority. No one will be able to challenge his, his judging authority. Everybody has a big mouth down here, not in heaven. None will be able to thwart his enforcing authority. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has prevailed. Any person who believes in the destruction of the world has been classified as a terrorist by the U.S. government. Go to government.gov. I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ by definition. I am under suspicion. I am marked. Our veterans, 
are conservatives and anybody who opposes this administration's policies. Pretty heavy. But nothing new for the church. It's just new for us. This part of the church. <laughs> Notice the right hand of Jesus had the left had the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven angels of messengers of the churches interpreted by Jesus himself. Once again, we're not left to our own interpretation. Stars are often symbolic of angels, as you know, which are simply messengers of God. Judge, uh, book of uh, Job 38.7, Daniel 12.3, Revelation 9.1, and many others. Here they have to be the pastors for the simple reason that the letters sent are to the pastors, not to angels. Angels don't read letters at the churches. So the context determines. The same word messenger for pastor, minister, but the context will determine what it is. Notice the right hand is the position of privilege, power, and authority. Jesus is in control of his church. Jesus is desiring to direct and guide his church. Jesus is at the right hand of God waiting to make his enemies a footstool. Psalm 110 verse 1. Then notice the mouth of Jesus had a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, representing war and perfect judgment, the standard, a plumb line by which he judges. If you're a pacifist, you're not biblical. Jesus hates evil and he destroys it. War is horrible. None of us who've, who have not been in war know understand and We can understand intellectually, but not being there. Horrible, the atrocities had happened. But war is the only way to destroy evil at times. And sometimes war is taken advantage for personal purposes and other atrocities are committed. But that's no reason not to go to war against evil. You destroy evil. You don't allow it. You don't permit it. So you as a Christian, if you're a pacifist, you're unbiblical. Live peaceably with all men, all that lies in you. But you come in my house trying to do damage to me or my wife. We're going to have a problem. I'm not going to be praying for you. Not at first. Are we clear on that? Now... The word for sword here is Ramphaya, a long thrashing sword of destruction and judgment. Hebrews 4.12, same word, sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19.15, coming out of his mouth. It is used of David when he cut off Goliath's head in the Septuagint of 1 Samuel 17.45. Because, you know, the rock didn't kill Goliath, they just knocked him out. And David didn't have a sword, so he went over, took his sword and cut off his head, and then he walked around with his head the rest of the day. Jesus came the first time as Savior, but the second time He's coming as Majestic Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords. Notice the countenance of Jesus was like the sun, shining in strength to the end of 16. He is the Majestic Christ in fulfillment of the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 72. He saw there Matthew, um, Moses, and Elijah glorify the preview of the second coming, Psalm 2 says, why do the heathen rage? Why do they imagine a vain thing? He will laugh at them and have them derision. He, in his glorified, outshining splendor, his radiant Shekinah glory, there on the mountain, that's how he's coming. He is the glorious, glorious high priest, prophet, and king. The rock cut out not with hands, not with human origin, that struck the image of Nebuchadnezzar at the feet, and it all crumbled, and the rock grew, grew, and it overcame the whole earth, the establishing of his kingdom. Daniel 2. You remember Daniel received the vision of Alexander the Great, and short-term and long-term, the Antichrist that will bring havoc upon Israel. In Daniel 8, 27, it says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days, Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business, and I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. God chose certain people to reveal certain things. Not everybody, not, they did not at all times understand all the time. 
But one thing for sure is they didn't say, hey, dude, how you doing? Or say, hey, well, I'm just kicking it. No, they were afraid. They were in awe. They revered. This is what's lacking in the pulpits of America. Reverence for God and his word. We want to be cool with the young people. How about if we would just pray that the young people become holy? Rather than us old fogies be cool. Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. Anybody who organizes and strategizes apart from Jesus adding to the church, they're running a business in a corporation. And Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. Why would you want to go to anybody else? Why would you consider anyone better than Jesus? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open with, to the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. Hebrews 4.13. All judgment has been given to the Son by the Father in John 5.22. No one else. Again, the preview of the second coming in Psalm 2 and other passages. As he laughs at them, has them in derision, and he finishes the psalm by saying... Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. The pagan practice, you are next Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. We kiss our scapular, we kiss our cross, we kiss our Bible, we kiss our little statues. The Bible says you want to kiss somebody, you kiss the Lord. You be devoted to him and him alone, or his wrath will fall upon you. Wow. Judgment begins at the hands of at the house of God, ladies and gentlemen. First Peter four seventeen. This was the incredible person in the vision. What's the vision of your life? Is it man or is it Jesus Christ? Is it your pastor, your church, its facilities, its accomplishments, its money, its radio programs? I hope not. Notice thirdly, the inescapable perception of the vision, 17 through 20. In 17, the response of John is seeing Jesus was overwhelming. John fell to his feet as dead at the feet of Jesus when he saw Jesus. This vision runs through the end of chapter 3, as you know. The glorified Christ in chapter 1, the messages to the seven churches, chapter 2 and 3. We'll take our time after today, next week's, to take the seven. The natural response of all men in the Bible, when they came face to face, and I can't say this enough, it was overwhelming, a sense of godly fear, like Moses, Elijah, Habakkuk, Daniel, Amos, all of them. The reassurance to John was to strengthen him being Overwhelmed. Notice Jesus comforted John by laying his right hand on him. Every one of you fathers know that. As your child is afraid, maybe they're going to take a test today. They've been studying hard. They've got a, a, a you know, a, a, a sports tryout. Or they've got to go to the dentist or something. And you bring them, you bring them aside and you say, hey, you're going to be okay. To assure that he would not die first of all. This is God he's seen. And to assure him that Jesus was the absolute Lord of history and creator of mankind. Jesus then said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The often repeated statement to the servants of God who were called and used throughout the ages. Why did he say stop being afraid or don't be afraid? Because they were. All of us will fear one time or another. I don't care how bad you think you are. You'll be a little girl one day or two in your life. And you will freak out because we are but dust. The often repeated phrase is given. Now the clear implication was that they were afraid. God did the same thing again with Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel. Daniel's been sick for some days. Now notice 18. 
the re-emphasized authority is declared to John by Jesus. Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive. Re-emphasized authority. Jesus, the living and eternal one. He was once dead. For his entire ministry of being Savior and Lord is centered upon the atoning work through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Listen, out from the dead, Lazarus and others were brought back to life. Jesus was raised in a resurrected manner, glorified out from the dead. Very, very distinct. The error's tense indicates that Jesus was once dead in fact. Why? Because people say it was a Passover plot. He just fainted. The people stole their body away. All these lies. No, the Bible says he died. He died in your place. He died for you. And he died for your sin. And he conquered death. And he obliterated my sin. That's what the Bible teaches. The word amen, I love it simply means to be a firm or confirm of what is stated. And that same word, it's a universal word that is known and used by everybody in the same way. You may say amen, amen, or whatever way, and hallelujah. Two universal words in whatever language you speak. And if you put that word amen in the beginning, it's like the word that Jesus says, verily, verily, truly, truly, which is announcement. What I'm going to say is very important. Pay attention. And if that same word amen is put at the end of the word, of the sentence or the, or the long paragraph, it says what I've said is true. Amen. So be it. Right here he says, it's very important and I affirm that. Jesus said, I have the keys of Hades and death, nor that he is the life giver and the life taker. Understand that. Revelation 3, 7, 9, 1, 20, verse 1, 21, 5. The Old Testament, I kill, I make alive, I heal, and I wound. Nebuchadnezzar says he's in heaven, he does as he will, no one can say, what are you doing? Jesus told Peter, and I say to you, your name is Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it in Matthew 16, 18. Gates represent the authority of hell. The gates of hell, the authority of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ or himself. All authority has been given to him, invested to us. Hades is the place of the departed spirit, the twofold compartment. Jesus shared in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, place of torment, place of comfort. Jesus descended to the Lord's parts in Ephesians 4, 8, and 9. And then he ascended up on high. 1 Peter 3, 19 through 20 says that he preached through the gospel to those who were there waiting in faith. And he scooped them up in Colossians chapter 2, 15 through 16. He ascended up on high, made a public display of the demons. They couldn't stop him. And he took those to heaven. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, instantly present with the Lord. So when you die as a Christian, you're instantly present. Your body goes to the ground. It'll be glorified when you get raptured. And if you die without the Lord, you'll be instantly presently in hell in torment only to be brought up and sentenced for your sins for eternal separation from God now I don't know where you want to spend eternity but I certainly wouldn't choose Hades I certainly wouldn't choose to be against Jesus but it is your choice the white throne judgment in Revelation 20 will be the sentencing of those not a second opportunity Anybody who tells you you have a second opportunity, they're liars. Jesus destroys him who had power of death, Satan. Hebrews 2.14 tells us. Jesus is the head of the church and fills all things, Ephesians 1.22 and 23. No one else. There's never been a pastor to do anything in the church. It's Jesus Christ. He calls them, he anoints them, he enables them. And some have given glory to God all the days of their life. And others began and they didn't afterwards. Notice the repeated command to write the commission of John is stated by a threefold division of the book. Serving as the table of contents in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen. The revelation, the unveiling of the glorified Christ, the heavenly high priest. Chapter 1. That's the first division. 
He gives us the table of contents. You cannot mess up the book of Revelation. It's the easiest to understand. The table of contents is given and he interprets everything. Write the things which are. The church age. That's the second division. The seven churches. Revelation 2 and 3. We're going to look at the seven letters to them. Thirdly, the things which will take place after these things. Metatalta. The seven year tribulation. The great tribulation. With the second coming, the kingdom maze, the resurrection, the judgment, and eternity after that. Chapter 4 to 22. After these things, Metatelta. Chapter 4 begins, after these things, Metatelta. We're in heaven. What is it that we don't understand? It correlates to the three visions of Christ as a glorified Christ in chapter 1. The Lamb of the Slain. In chapter 5, 6 through 7, and the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in Revelation eleven fifteen. Notice in the last verse 20, Jesus reserved the right to communicate the interpretation of this vision. He repeats the vision to assure what John saw. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands. The right hand, again, symbolic of power and authority. Absolute power and authority. The word mystery, mysterion, meaning something previously hidden, now made known from the word muo to shut the mouth. There are several mysteries. I'm going to give you all of the ones that are in the New Testament. None of them are concealed. They've been revealed. The first, the mystery of the kingdom of God. Matthew thirteen eleven, Not hidden. The mystery of Israel's blindness until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. Romans eleven twenty five, Not hidden. The mystery of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation that was kept secret since the world began. Romans sixteen twenty five, Not hidden. The mystery of our uh, being changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, Not hidden. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 2 Thessalonians 2.7, not hidden. The mystery of the seven churches. Revelation 1.20, not hidden. The mystery of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. Revelation 17.3 or 17.5, not hidden. All that God wants us to know has been revealed, unveiled. Now notice the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We cannot give it a foreign interpretation. The word angel once again appears 76 times in the book. The majority refer to literal angels. But an attempt to interpret that these angels for the messages to the seven churches, our angels, is wrong because, once again, angels don't read letters. They are the pastors, the messengers over the seven churches. Simple. Jesus has the clear position of authority and power. Notice that as he's standing where? In the midst of his seven churches. He's aware. He's in control. He's directing and guiding. Jesus is the ruling king, the high priest, the prophet. Is ever present, overseeing, overruling his church to affect his church. Just like the sun. As you know, not all prophets understood clearly what God had revealed to them. They searched the scriptures at times and said... I don't know for who, future generations. At other times, they knew exactly it was for their day. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 tells that very, very clearly. Now, when a person says that Jesus appeared to them or they have spoken to Jesus visibly, physically, um, and they do so without reverence or a contradiction of the Word of God, you need to take caution. I've told you before that 20, 25 years ago, Hagen on the TV and Channel 40 said that he was shaving one day and Jesus appeared. And he goes, oh, hi, Jesus. And he just kept talking to Jesus. Listen, if Jesus appeared to me, I would be in awe and I would be on the ground. I wouldn't continue shaving. And if I was shaving, I'd probably cut my throat. Okay? 
Their testimony contradicts scriptures and the men of God. Their testimony reveals lack of reverence of God, arrogance, and spiritual pride. Trying to exalt themselves over you or try to make you a liar like them. So that you can appear spiritual. One constant thing that God kept telling Ezekiel, get up, get up. Because he kept falling on his face every time he saw God. Ezekiel 1.28, 3.23 and many others. We must be ever dependent on Jesus for strength, courage and wisdom. So we must abide in Christ to be fruitful. John 15.5 Abiding in Him. Putting on the whole armor of God that we may do good warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Looking to Him, not ourselves. Satan roams as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 18. He loves sleepy, lukewarm Christian. The authority by which a Christian lives by is that of Jesus Christ, not their own to preach the gospel, to tell people their sins are forgiven if they repent, to tell people if they don't repent, their sins are retained, and if they die without Christ, they will be eternally lost. I have all authority. We don't do that with any joy or with any satisfaction, but we must do it in warning for those before they die. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20, the Great Commission. It's not the Great Suggestion. It says, in your going, when you go, as you go, a participle. There was never any doubt of not going. Evangelism begins the first steps out of this building. The Christian is to be about the Lord's business till he comes. Not comparing ourselves among each other to see who's the best. Not thinking we're the only ones and not being discouraged because of the seeming delay. He is coming. He will be right on time. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, the context is Paul's infirmity for that thorn in the flesh. But that applies for everything. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things with Christ who strengthens me. What he calls me to do, not what I want to do. If he calls you, he enables you. The Bible is best understood if we allow the Scriptures to interpret the self. The Scripture interprets Scripture. At times, interpretation is given to us like here. It's just straight out. Other times, we have to roll up our sleeves with good inductive Bible study through observation, key words, key phrases, so on and so forth, looking at the context, at the cultural background, looking at the language, and arrive at an interpretation comparing Scripture with Scripture. But we're always to do it dependent with a prayerful attitude and prayer that God would direct and guide us. Never being confident in our own ability to do so. Studying in such a way with an attitude that God sees our heart and that we are subject to the authority of His Word. Not our own authority. 1 Corinthians 2, 11-13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Scripture interprets Scripture. How many are ignoring this simple principle in the church today from the pulpit. They're more motivational talks. In fact, the majority of the emergent church, even seeker-friendly, do not call these sermons. They call them talks. We dialogue. We don't dialogue here. There are teachings here. There are sermons here. 
encourage you to study, to verify, to check, to be a good Berean, to become more like Jesus Christ, to give Him the glory, and that you're His servant, not mine. You're not here to build my kingdom. You're not here to make the church large. We're here to tell Jesus Christ after the church daily, such as He determines to be saved. This was the inescapable perception of the vision. What an incredible vision of the glorified Christ. Characterized by the impressionable voice of the vision, the incredible person in the vision, and the inescapable perception of the vision. Now, if you don't think you need this glorified, unveiled Christ for today, then you've got another problem. <laughs> you need to be born again. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We pray you would deal with our hearts and we pray for those that are here who do not know you, that you'd be glorified. And we thank you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to be saved, to repent of your sins. You alone can respond to the conviction of Christ. No one else. And your sins alone, he will forgive for you that you be a child of God. If you see yourself as lost, it's the grace of God. If you see yourself in need of salvation, it's the grace of God. If you desire to be saved, that's the mercy and grace of God also. But you must take that step. If this is your decision, maybe you're in the balcony or the floor or over the internet, this is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. And He's going to save you right now, right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.